Hi, and welcome to another episode of Political Journeys. I'm Stuart Harper. And I'm Ryan Henson. And the nature of a political journey is one that has its ups and downs. And we want to hear from candidates, from members of parliament, and from those in the political sphere about what attracted them to a political journey in the first place, the nature of that journey for them, and what tips they can offer to others who are on a journey of their own. And we are delighted to be joined today by Peymana Assad and Heather Staff. Peymana is a Labour Party councillor in the London borough of Harrow, co-founder of the Labour Foreign Policy Group, Europe leader for the Obama Foundation, and the first British Afghan elected official. Heather is a Labour Party councillor in the London borough of Islington, where she's also the co-migrants champion Heather is an advisor on refugee, asylum and migration policy, chair of the Labour Campaign for International Development and vice chair of Christians on the left. As always, there's far more that I could say by way of introduction, but hopefully that gives our listeners a really good introduction to our two fantastic guests. And we're so grateful to have you both here today. Um, Let's kick off. Um, Why politics? You're both accomplished people. What made you decide that politics, with all its challenges and abuse on Twitter and the the sort of horror of losing elections, you know, the joy of winning elections, but why politics? Um, Maybe, Heather, I'll come to you first. Yeah, it's a a funny one, but I think really it's the the practical outcome of of wanting to help people and see change. So in a way, it can be very practical on the ground. And certainly being a councillor, I found that, you know, you can really love your neighbour by being on the doorstep, talking to people, fixing the problem that they have. Um, and in terms of nationally, it sounds, you know, everybody says it, then they want to make a difference. But it really is, you know, for me, I didn't want to just sit behind a desk doing kind of other people's policy. I wanted to be involved in that, shaping it uh, and trying to make a, a real difference, a real change where I saw need, whether that be social action around homelessness or whether that be around refugee policy or international policy. So... For me, it was a real kind of heart thing. Like, I, I just wanted to be in there and, and making that change. And did you have that from a very young age? Because I hear stories about um, some politicians, some MPs, they, they decide aged eight. I can't remember who I was uh, reading about. Someone said at eight years old they wanted to be prime minister. But you get that sort of personality. <laughs> I'm not casting judgment on them, you know, whoever it is. But um, how, did you have that from a very young age, or was this something that came to you later in life? No. <laughs> No, I don't think, if anyone had asked me that age, was I going to be in politics? Or the, no. Um, what did happen to me, I, re- I just remember seeing on the TV things like you know, the Ethiopia famine, or even, I just remember being really upsetting, there was a particular crime around, it was a domestic abuse case that I saw and it really affected me, but both my parents were very involved um, in the health service, so they were, both parents uh, were very instrumental in setting up needle exchanges, um, they were involved in HIV and AIDS work, in home so we always had people around in our house I just grew up with it with them on the streets caring for people and they used to say to me you know it's better to love somebody than to leave them dead mm-hmm. um, and I think that really put in me that sense of I want to make a difference I just didn't know what that was actually until quite late on probably mm-hmm. until I did my master's at university so yeah I was always I just didn't know quite what that looked like but it was definitely internally there yeah thank you Pema same question to you why politics and did you always want to be in politics in, in an elected capacity? Uh, no. So in my family, politics is a dirty word. Uh, right. Politicians are considered liars and 
um, people who actually commit lots of fraud and corruption and all sorts of other things. So, uh, you know, it wasn't seen as a profession that, you know, we were encouraged to, to go towards. If anything, my family were more like going, be a doctor, be a teacher, be an engineer, be a lawyer, sort of those kinds of professions. But because of my refugee background, I think that's quite normal from a refugee immigrant background to want to go into those kinds of professions. I think really it was when I was about 11 years old, um, the first Taliban regime were in power and there was an image on television and BBC News um, of a woman kneeling in Kabul Stadium and she had a gun to her head from a Taliban fighter. And I think that really radicalized me in a way that I wanted to do charity work. I wanted to understand why it was that my family had come to the UK. Um, what was I doing here and how do I give back? And so my whole thing was right, I've got to get a degree and got to learn and get the skills and then go back to Afghanistan. Um, but obviously things work out differently and my parents were completely against the idea of me going back to Afghanistan. So like any person who graduates from university, I just hung around the house and refused to, do, refused to get a job and just walked around in my pyjamas all day. And, you know. and then it was one day when my dad said to me, you do know that there are people who need your help in the UK too? And I said, yeah, as if there's poor people in the UK and he said you'll be surprised actually you should go and volunteer with the charity and see if you like it um, so I found this local charity who was helping um, single mums access local housing services so I was just filling out their sort of forms to get social housing um, and then one day this woman came in who couldn't speak a word of English she was pregnant she had two kids under the age of five um, her, her husband was gambling all the, the money away they were making and she was in a really difficult position and the local council refused to help house her um, because of various different conditions she hadn't met them and I think that was what really made me angry because I said if there's this woman here how many other people are there like this in my own community who aren't getting the support and help they need mm -hmm. and a bit like Heather that's when I was like well I want to see who's at fault for this mm -hmm. how do I change this and I want to seat at the table so that I can advocate for, for, for people who voices aren't being heard by those in power and that's how I got into politics really um, joined the Labour Party became a councillor it sounds like an easy journey but it was really difficult yeah no I really appreciate that and being the first um, British Afghan elected official does that do you feel a sense of responsibility like you know do, do you feel that there's a weight of expectation on you that there perhaps isn't on your you, you know your your other colleagues on the council for example Definitely, for sure. I feel there's this weight of responsibility, like I'm not a, only a representative of uh, my culture and, and people from my background, but actually people from all over the UK come to me. Uh, I don't just get casework from Harrow, I get casework from Scotland, from Wales, from Northern Ireland. I get casework from everywhere. So the range of contacts and networks that I've been forced to make because of that is, is wide. You know, I've been able to find charities in places that you know pe that people need help in you know from Leeds to Liverpool to to Glasgow to you know places that I never imagined that I would be having to to do that but I guess people feel that their voice is heard in a different way by someone who speaks their language and that's why they they come to me so in some senses yeah there is this weight on my shoulders um around it but I hope that that weight is going to be lifted hopefully in the future because I think I've um, you know, when I first stood as a candidate in 2014 for the council, I was the first person to ever do it from my background. And I think that really made my community think, oh, hold on, 
we, we don't just have to be doctors and nurses and lawyers and engineers and teachers. We can actually do other things. Um, and that's when I think that people started to get encouraged to vote and actually get involved in, the, in political parties, not just the Labour Party, but we now have a Conservative councillor in Solihull who's mm. of Afghan origin. She was elected the year after me, Wajma Case, for example, and there's a guy from the SNP in Scotland who's also of Afghan background. Um, so, you know, that, that's kind of helped galvanise the community to, to realise that they can get involved. Can, in I, can I just pick up on, on, on that from both of you? Because it's really interesting that you talk both about um, the, the impact that you can have at home, um, but by, um, by association overseas as well. And I know both of you have got a lot of background and interest in foreign policy um, and in and international development um, more generally. I'd be really interested in your thoughts about how well prepared that generation of of parliamentarians that are that are going to come in at the next election from both sides, um, uh, both main parties, how well prepared they are to tackle those those big foreign policy uh, issues that 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 you're rightly referring to as being quite important in in terms of domestic policy as well. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think there are a number of uh, people I know or, or friends, including the founder of Elsid, he's got his uh, a seat up in Hemel, um, who I do think um, are in a position to tackle those big questions. So I know they've had backgrounds, whether that be in an NGO sector or whether they have worked in the past in the Foreign Office um, or in charities. They've spent you know a number of years working overseas on the ground. So it's not just that they've sat in an office doing it. They have actually seen and experienced it and, and often in quite depressing cases I think as well and they'll come with some of that that baggage that what they've seen um we also got friends who are very good on the kind of refugee sector as well having worked there and again seen it and experienced it so I do think they'll bring some of that and I think regardless of what you do when you go into elected office you can't really separate your own experience um, or the kind of professional experience that you have so they will be able to take that in of course you know None of us are kidding ourselves that you'd be able to get immediate change or it depends on what happens, you know, internationally. And obviously it depends on the direction of travel of, of politically, you know, where the party's at or the government's at at the time as to how much influence you can have. But I do think it's exceptionally helpful to have people that, you know, have either been a professional in the field or have experienced it or have life experience that they can shape and bring that into the conversations that they're having. Um, I think that it's really a balance that candidates sort of, regardless if you're a sitting mm -hmm. MP or if you're, you know, wanting to go into Parliament, that you need to strike between understanding domestic issues mm -hmm. and foreign policy issues. Um, obviously, as Heather said, there's a lot of expertise where people have the background in foreign policy, either from the civil service or from the NGO sector or others that they're bringing into Parliament. And then there's others who have just domestic um, mm -hmm. understanding and domestic experience. And so there's there's a need and, and, and a a gap, I guess, for education, really, for uh, parliamentarians um, to get that understanding of why it's important to be supportive of international aid. But how do we do that better? Why it's supportive? Why it's important that we support, for example, Ukraine and its war against Russia, and how does that impact us locally? And I think this understanding of global issues impact local communities is really key here. And I think we're seeing that more and more, you know, over the last few years, specifically. <clears throat> for example, the Afghan evacuation, we saw an influx of more than 100,000 
refugees who came to, to the UK through that, we still see them arriving on small boats. That's also linked to our domestic policy. The same thing around Ukrainian refugees. And there's, there's so much else that, that impacts us locally that, that we need to get a grip on understanding that we live in a globalized world and we need to understand how our domestic policy impacts global issues, but also how global and real live events impact us locally here at home. And I think that gap needs to be filled. And I don't know whether we, we've got a real grip on it at the moment, but I think more and more we need to understand how we relate that back in our messaging and on our narratives to, to local communities. Because obviously the first thing we care about is their lives here at home. But at the same time, we are an international you know, country. We have a global standing in the world. People look to Britain for a lot of these answers and our parliamentarians should be able to get a grip on those issues. Mm. That's really interesting. It, I really like the way you both set, set it out. I mean, when I ask this question, you will gather quite quickly that I'm not a professional journalist because I know I'm loading the question <laughs> a little bit, but I'm not trained, so you know, we'll just go with it. I suspect, well, no, I think that too many politicians um, hide behind this shield which says, mm. my constituents don't like this, therefore I can't support it, even if privately they support it. Now that could be international development, it could be whatever. My feeling is that if you're in politics you should have convictions and you should have the courage of those convictions. Now it's easy for me to say because I don't hold elective office <laughs> and I say that to every MP I talk to. Um, do you think there is something around that, that actually when it comes to it you can articulate that message, you can do more to communicate to communities, but ultimately you just gotta you just gotta say what you think and and stand up by it, you know, a bit like the politicians of old, the Tony Benz, the you know, uh, Clement Attlees, the I know I'm choosing all men, but you know, <laughs> but, you know it's it, the Thatchers even, dare I say it, you know, like the um, is that is that fair? Do you think you've both you've both you're both in politics, you've both elected Councillors, is that fair? Do you think? Do you want me to? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it, it, you always get asked it, and even as a councillor, sometimes there will be things where your gut is leading one way, but actually you're very aware, hey, I am elected on the platform, I'm elected on the manifesto, mm -hmm. so I also have to defend this on the doorstep. And, you know, you can, but equally, I'm a big believer, actually, in having a conversation with someone. Now, I understand you can't always get to every single person and have that conversation, but I am a big believer in explainability, um, and often people will be on the same page, but you just need to put the work in. Um, and sometimes I'm also quite a big believer in the fact that, you know, you, you should be able to tell a story or a narrative and you can change the narrative as well and say, you know what, I, you know, I'm passionate in international development. This is why it's good for us. This is why it works. And, you know, I was born in Nottingham um, and you know, my grandma lived in, in, in Farndon and, you know, it's not what I'd call the most cosmopolitan area at all. Yet, you know, my gran would talk with great fondness about the Polish airmen. Mm. She would always welcome my friends who came to stay from the Balkans. You know, she was really, really compassionate in that. You know, we would have long discussions on, you know, aid and the importance of aid or refugee policy. And often it came down to concerns that weren't really about aid. It wasn't really about refugee. It was about something else. I didn't know my neighbourhood or I'm worried that my neighbours have moved or how am I going to afford to do this? Or, you know, often it was worry for me. How are you going to be able to afford to get a house? You know, so it's just about explainability. So 
I think it's a bit of both. I think you can stand by your conviction mm. and have those conversations while at the same time still having that balance of, you know, I'm going to have this conversation with you, but I am also an elected representative and I believe in what I've been, rep- I've been elected on and I also need to defend that as well. So it is that balance, but I am a massive believer in being able to explain and have those difficult conversations with people and showing that kind of passion mm. that comes out as well. And, and, you know, and also I do think there are times, for example, on the conscience vote or free vote, where you should be able to say, this is, you know, I, I, I do believe this and I am going to stand on this. Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest examples of this, I think, is probably Brexit. I know people don't like to talk <laughs> about it, but, you know, there were MPs who were against Brexit, um, but actually their constituents were for it. Um, and I saw, you know, for example, Jess Phillips came out and said, you know, uh, I, I think that this is a wrong thing that we're doing, but actually my constituents support it. Um, and yet she, she still kept her seat um, when, when it came down to the general election. So I think that some MPs have been able to do it really well, um, where they've been able to explain the, the issues that they believe in versus what their constituents. Again, I think it's about how we communicate that, as Heather said. But I also think about that, it, you know, this is, this is about bringing live examples to constituents, right? And I can give you a really good uh, example of the way I did it. I'm a huge supporter of international development. I obviously have my own concerns about whether how it works or it doesn't work. And, you know, those are really like geeky, you know, uh, things that you look into and you can write reports and, and research and stuff around it. But um, in general, um, if you look at my constituents, I represent a place in South Harrow called Roxeth. It's one of the most deprived areas in Harrow. When people think of Harrow, they think of Harrow School. They don't think, oh, there's constituents in South Harrow who might not be able to pay the rent or might not be able to put food on the table. Their main concern is not international development, for example. And the biggest question for for a long time some of them had is, why are we sending so much money abroad? Why are we doing this? Um, And I think I had a really good opportunity in 2019 um, when I was part of this um, project where we brought over the girls' orchestra from Afghanistan, um, the only female orchestra in Afghanistan. We brought them over here and the then um, International Development Secretary held a concert for them at Lancaster House and all of these other stuff. But I thought, but we need to get these girls into Mm. an actual community. And so we did community concerts um, across across the UK, actually. Um, And I also held a concert for them in in Harrow. um, And we did it in the Harrow Arts Centre. And what I made sure is that the the, the proceedings, people's, you know, buying tickets, we split that between donating that to the arts centre because they were in need of funds, but also sending half of that money towards girls' education. And what I did was, outside of the concert, just before it, we had a Q&A with some of the girls, um, and the audience were there. And these are people, like, you know, working-class communities, people from different backgrounds. Um, and I just remember this one moment where I felt like I'd done my job, job really well here, is this white working class man came, like, stood up and was like, I don't have a question. He goes, I just heard everything that's been said by these girls around why, how Britain's support mean, what, what it means to them and how it's supported them, not only to learn music, but also to get an education. And actually, I just wanted to say, welcome to Harrow and thank you for coming. Uh, and he sat down and he had the most working class accent <laughs> and, and he was like this white man and like, he just, you know, he was everything that you would think, um, in that box that, peop- that politicians put people in, mm. saying he would be against international development, he would be against all of this. But he, actually, he was there and he was listening and he ended up saying something really, really nice. And I just thought to myself, that's kind of job done. It kind of shows you that you don't have to pick either or. You can do both, but you have to show the community this is what the result of our, our support looks like, actually. Um, and I think that, that that's how we, we do it, really. Yeah. 
Like that's yeah, just so great to hear. And um, and thanks for flagging that because I think like coming from a solidly white working class background, I mean, you could be describing my dad, you know. In that, um, you know, thank you for highlighting that because I think politicians, well, everyone, we we all guilty of it, I suppose, pigeonhole certain groups and actually. Yeah, same as you said, Heather, about your nan. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I learned about development from, you know, the, at the mm-hmm. knee of my nan, who yeah. was supposed to sound like very similar to yours. Stuart, I know you're eager to come in. Yeah, I, I just wanted to, to sort of ask, um, building on that point, really, what more we can do um, to build connections across the aisle? Because it, it, it seems to me that the, the heart of some of these issues is that we, um, we have a tendency to say... Um, that all good ideas come from one one direction and not from the other uh regard um, whichever side we're on it, we we've come up with the good ideas and everything you say must therefore be wrong that tribal nature of politics isn't helping us coming necessarily to the right answers um and i wondered whether uh whether you had any thoughts on on how we can break those barriers down in order that some of these issues around um international devel- development uh, in uh, foreign policy more widely can be solved by a greater collaboration um in in those uh, in that thinking yeah i think yeah what i would definitely say is where the convergence comes isn't it so you always by nature of the political beast have differences but where there is that moment of no we absolutely agree and i think you often see this around times of emergency so there might be those moments of we might slightly disagree on the delivery or who we're talking to, but there is a clear emergency. We need to act here. We need to do this properly. And I think that is where you do need people to come together and say, actually, we're all pulling in the same direction. This is the right thing to do. We must act right now. Otherwise, this will be a horrific catastrophe. So whether that's delivery of aid or whether that's you know humanitarian disaster from an earthquake, um, you know, actually, we need to be pulling together, not pulling apart and saying that this is the right thing for our nation to be involved in. But equally, I think this happens more than people realise um, in Parliament. So part of my day job being a political advisor on refugees is you often have the committees, for example, the select committees are very good examples of this, where often there will be quite a lot of people talking to each other and saying, actually, you know, I would quite like this policy, or can we ask a question around this, or can we converge at this APPG to get this particular issue through? Um, and this wasn't a, a sort of development thing, but I remember being on the free school meals kind of area there was a lot of kind of cross-party work around this and a lot of kind of you know chats in the corridors as you call it to get a kind of change in the department of education's policy so i think it does happen much more than people realize but on the development side i do think there are moments to say we we do need to put aside our kind of you know party political tribalism and recognize that there will always be a little bit of difference in how what we want to say or how we work in that area but when it comes to it, we do need to deliver and we need to make sure we're doing this properly and that will require everybody to come and say, yeah, we're on board here, let's full steam ahead, let's get this you know, correct policy in place, whether that's white paper, whether that's funding, whether that's a humanitarian response that needs immediate action. Because, you know, the, often in development, and you'll know this as well, Pamela, like with Afghanistan, the more you wait the worse it gets. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes better to come together and say, let's act now. We can argue about different things later on. But if we keep waiting, if we keep arguing, if we keep, you know, it's just going to get worse in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, and people require 
an immediate assistance or they require a better plan in place or they require a kind of collective response that comes to the UN to say, no, we are in agreement, this is what we need to do, rather than kind of pulling in all sorts of directions mm-hmm. um, and then have, you know, the nuanced debate behind the scenes, as it were. But I, I certainly think at times it's right for us to be doing that. Yeah. Do you think sometimes that, do you think sometimes that when we do, when we do that, there is that criticism of, uh, if we act quickly, sometimes, not always, but very and very often not, but sometimes it will go wrong. Um, and then you'll get that, that criticism of, well, that's wasted money because you didn't think it through properly. Whereas actually we have to be prepared sometimes that in the, the nature of, of these decisions, um, there will be some that we get wrong um, and we need to forgive ourselves for those. And perhaps, um, I mean, I, I genuinely think that, that international development spending is, amongst the most scrutinized of of, of, of of any spending so I, I I think the the argument that it's that it is wasted as a principle is is fundamentally flawed it, it is just fair to say that if you're going to make a quick decision sometimes you're going to get it wrong yeah absolutely I completely agree with that and you know obviously you want proper planning so and hopefully there'll be something in the pipeline which allows for that decision to be made both quickly but with a quality decision. But I do think there needs to be a bit of grace. I think the other problem that I was going to mention, I don't know if Pimana might mention, when you do work collaboratively or across the aisle, as it were, often, the, well, don't want to criticise the media that heavily, but often there's a bit of negativity towards that in a sense that it feels like you're doing something wrong by working together to get a result. So, you know, I think our country is set up in such a way at times where it likes that oppositional debate or it wants that so when people do come together to say actually we do agree on this we want to get this through actually it's very hard to do that because of the way that our press responds or the way that people's perception is of how parliament works so again i come back to the kind of committee kind of format where a lot of decisions are made together or people might be agreeing on things behind the scenes rather in that kind of public pmqs type let's just you know bat each other around Mm. um so it can be quite difficult i think I just wanted to come on uh, this point that was just mentioned actually on international development. It might be the most scrutinised in terms of the way that funding is given out or support is given. Um, But I think more and more we are living in a different type of world. Um, And it's not the 1990s. I know David Lamy uh, said that too once. But I actually agree with him. Uh, Coming from a family who were direct recipients of international aid at one point, um, when my family were in an IDP camp in Afghanistan, escaping uh, a brutal civil war in Kabul, um, my parents were witness to how aid is not distributed fairly and how aid is wasted and how aid doesn't get to the people who most need it. And I think that we need to not only be responsible to taxpayer money that that people are giving towards it, but also to the people on the ground. We owe it to them to do it properly. And I think that there needs to be a rethink on making sure that we don't make communities dependent Mm. on aid, but actually help communities come out of needing aid. Um, um, So that, that, I just wanted to to make that comment on that. But I think in general, um, you know, our democracy gets a lot of criticism. I think internally we think, oh, it's all going downhill and it's all not very great, um, considering we look at our national politicians and the kind of situations we're in. But I think actually it's 
the essence of our democracy works really well. Um, it's, it, you know, the essence of it is to have political parties who think differently. The essence is to have that political debate on, on what it is that you want to see, what policies you want to push through, because at the end of the day, we all want the best for our country. We just have different ideas of how to get there. Um, it's the how do we get there yeah. part that's the, the key. Um, and I think that we need to have more open-minded politicians, not just councillors, but MPs, mm -hmm. who are willing to understand, well, actually, I don't need to be so ideological on this issue. I can, there is some room yeah. for me to maneuver on this issue that will make things better for people, even if it doesn't align with my ideological political belief on it. Um, and I think that we as politicians need to stop putting people into mm. boxes and saying, well, this community thinks like this mm. and this community thinks like this. This is why ideologically we need to do this. Uh, when actually, when you come into power and you're in a powerful position you know when I was a cabinet member things look totally different from that side mm. when when you're at the decision-making yeah. table and things are put in front of you they're way more complicated way more difficult than you could ever imagine you know so you, you can't always do what you ideologically and politically want to do um, so in that sense I think that we need more open-minded people to, that are able to maneuver within within that framework um, and we just need some nicer people too um, because I think that you know, hating someone else because they're from a different political uh, idea is also not great. Um, we're here to have debate and to, to discuss how do we make our country better. Uh, and that's the essence of this democracy and it's why it's worked so well um, compared to other countries. Yeah, no, <laughs> couldn't agree more. And um, yeah, and thank you both for answering so well. It's a tricky question, how to work across the divide uh, during an election year. So yeah, yeah I thought it was, yeah makes total sense um, I want to just move us away from uh, themes and just bring it back to the personal now if I may and I'll put this to you first Pimana so have a, you get a minute to, yes. to think this time um, could you tell us about your experience just as a candidate in politics that can be at the local or the national um, and especially I think what it's like to be uh, a female candidate in an election because you know, everyone knows it's it's a lot harder. The, you know, so not to lead you in any particular direction, but we know that social media is particularly tough, for example, on, on women. But when I ask this question, it always can feel really dreadful. Uh, so, as a additional question to that question, um, what advice would you give to others, as in terms of you know trying to encourage them as well? So, what's it like being a candidate, warts and all? But what do you say to those who are struggling or thinking about jumping in? When I stood as a candidate first time in 2014 for the council, I, you know, I was in a margin, what they call a marginal um, ward. Um, so it wasn't known if we were going to win or not. And Labour lost that by, what, 200 votes? So the, the person at the top um, lost it by 200 votes. And I just had a lot of fun, to be honest. It was good to be able to knock on doors and talk to people in my local area. I was going coming across people who I went to school with and they were like, wow, you're doing this? This is like so different. And, uh, you know, they didn't think that anybody from our, you know, local area would even go into something like that. So I really enjoyed it. Um, and then I lost and, and lots of people around me who were candidates kind of walked away from it because they, you know, they thought we didn't win. Well, what's the point of continuing? But I was really motivated by the fact that I wanted to see change in my local community. 
And um, the second time round, it was much harder to get selected. Navigating the selection process is really, really difficult as a local um, candidate because you've got to maneuver between all the different, you know, people with different interests, and you've got to see who your allies are, and then those who you're competing with, and. And even that was quite fun too, in, in some senses. Um, but I think, um, not to say that it went downhill, but when I became an actual counsellor, um, I realised how much more exposure it gave me, not only to the local community, but also online. Um, that everything was scrutinised, um, but scrutinised in a more negative way. Um, so people didn't see it coming from, uh, she cares about the community, that's why she is talking about this issue in a different way, but rather, actually, she's just a, a Labour councillor and she just she wants bad for our community, and I think of a different political um, idea, and, you know... Um, so they think it's OK for them to say things online that they necessarily wouldn't say to you in person. Um, and so my experience has been of ups and downs, really, not just within being a councillor with your colleagues, you know, the difficulties and the challenges that you go through, which I, I think are so somewhat similar to how you would have challenges in a normal workplace, but somewhat different because, um, you know, this is all about <clears throat> what positions you get. Are you a cabinet member? Are you not a cabinet member? Are you a backbench councillor? Are you the leader of your group? Are, you know, all of these kinds of things. And in a way, it teaches you skills, a lot of people skills. How do you manage speaking to not only your colleagues, but also your constituents? Um, and that is a huge sort of life skill that you, that you pick up. Um, and being able to navigate that is, is a real challenge. I think some of the more negative stuff um, that comes from it, you know, I attended a meeting with my local MP at one point, and after that I started to get death threats, um, you know, phone calls, and, you know, you get rape threats, and you get all these other types of things, not just online, but also, you know, uh, in person, people shouting at you. And I think that this comes down to this one issue where people think they own you because they voted for you or they, that they own uh, elected officials because they vote for them. And, and I think that's where the frustration for me comes into and where the difficulties, the experience uh, of this. I never ever thought that someone would think that they own me just because they vote for me. Um, and uh, that would, that's a learning experience for me over the last five years. Um, and I think that's got, to change. that's got to change because people can't look at an elected official and think, right, I own you because I vote for you. Well, actually, we've got to see it as... I trust this person to make really difficult decisions on my behalf because I don't have the capacity or the understanding or the ability to do this job, so I've given them the trust to do it, and they might not always make the decisions that I want, it, I want them to, um, and to, have, to be able to trust that they're making those decisions in, with all the information available to the best of their knowledge, but also with the intention for doing good, not the intention of doing bad. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a piece that we need to work on as politicians and candidates and just generally as a society on that. And the advice I would say, you know, it's easy to say to someone to have thick skin when you come into this, mm -hmm. but just to be mentally really strong and ready um, because the type of things that are thrown at you the accusations or the images that people create of you, not just online but in person, can really impact someone's mental health. And so it's really important to be able to step away from politics and to have that downtime to take care of yourself and to remember you're just a human being and you know, you've got family that love you, you've got friends that love you and there's people that care about you outside of this whole politics world. Because mm -hmm. it is a really different world to, 
to the real world in, in essence. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I think I would echo a lot as what Paymana said. I, I think my general thing would always be don't do it alone. Like, have a team, like, go together. There's always that saying, isn't it? If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go further, you know, have a team behind you. And I think that, for me, was crucial. Um, Number one, I think when I went through selection to be a counsellor, I I didn't really believe that I was going to get elected, even though it it was a really safe seat in Islington. But it was a new ward... You know, I was getting to know my new colleagues. Um, they, you know, one had been a sitting councillor, one was brand new as well. So we're sort of getting to know our own personalities, getting to know the people in the ward as well. Um, but having that team was really helpful, even to express your own doubts. So you go through the kind of, you know, the panel that you have to do, and it, it checks who you are and are you okay. And then you have to go for the sort of long listing, and then there's the short listing, and then you have to do a speech. You know, there's hustings. So it, it, it is quite a vulnerable time because you suddenly discover things about yourself that you weren't ready for or oh my goodness I didn't realize I had a fear of public speaking or where has this come from or you know why do I suddenly need to know about all the lifts in my estates you know I'm going to get a bit geeky about <laughs> so bins or yeah exactly yeah so it's all these things that suddenly happen to your your mind you know so now as a counsellor it's quite funny so my my parents always laugh when I go up to to visit them in Scotland but I'm suddenly taking pictures of things like potholes or like you know I'm obsessed with how they've got a bin collection (laughs) I don't know this never happened to me before what is going on so I think it is just being aware that you you know you don't change personality but certain things happen to you during that process Um, but also what I would very much say is hold it lightly hold it lightly because you know you are often going up against you know friends of yours and and the way they often say it is you know you are in competition but you're not against as it were you know you're all trying to get the best possible candidates in but but very much hold it lightly you know as Pimana said keep a life outside of that and I think one of the things that people don't realize is and you absolutely spot on about feeling like you're owned um you know, suddenly there are demands on you that people anticipate you to be there 24 hours mm. or they feel like you're an emergency service. And yeah. our whip is very good at telling us this on the council, but we're not an emergency service. Um, the trouble is when you care. <laughs> you know, I, I, I remember doing a Saturday where I literally spent probably from 8 a.m. until 9 p.m. at night with an old lady because I just would not leave until her heating had got sorted because I care. Should I have done that? Probably not. But I think you need to be aware of your own boundaries as well. But it's quite hard to be aware of that until you're in that position. Mm. Oh, okay, this is my default response to this this position. I will go the extra mile. Um, you know, some people are very good at having those boundaries. Um, and I think the other thing is around what you're saying around threats. I I never really experienced it until I became a counsellor, and I, I it was a kind of emergent, emergence of my day job slash being a counsellor around migration. And suddenly, it was the last um, immigration bill that went through. I was getting quite serious death threats um, and rape threats, and people accusing me of all kinds of things, and also accusing you of power that I didn't realise yes, I had, which exactly. was amazing. So I, I didn't realise I had all this sudden power to you know do this things that I was being accused of. Um, but you know, again, it's having friends that you can talk to managing mm. your sort of mental health for that process realizing that a lot of people are just keyboard warriors that you know yeah. um, and again I was you know I'm in a very lucky position where my council were excellent you know they handed us all the kind of alarms we had extra security for different things but 
it, it does suddenly make you aware, I guess, about the vulnerability or the way that people perceive you when you become elected. For me, there was no change really in my head. I was just like, I'm just me. I'm just fixing a, you know, asbestos <laughs> or something. But you know, I'm trying to do a borough sanctuary thing for our borough. But I think you suddenly aware that actually people don't see you like that. They mm. see you as somebody that has a lot of power. You're making set decisions. They might think you believe a certain thing even though you don't believe a certain thing. Um, a lot of assumptions get made about you. I remember somebody um, once, you know, using the fact that I try and approach things fairly in a nuanced way as kind of saying that I didn't have any convictions. And that really upset me because mm. I'm definitely someone that has a lot of convictions. But I was trying to explain to him, no, I need to just get all the evidence and make a decision based on what I'm seeing and I need time to just look at this and then I'll come back to you. Mm. But, you know, the accusation was, well, you know, Where's your, where's your integrity? Where's your you know, conviction on this issue? Why haven't you made a decision within five seconds mm. of you know, hearing something? So again, I think it is about just finding people around you who've got your back, um, who can help you through that process, realizing your own limitations. Um, you know, you're not God. <laughs> you, know, you do have to answer to other people. And Pimon is exactly right as well. You manage different personalities. It's a great set of skills you learn being mm. on it. On you know, I'm, I'm speaking as a counsellor, but you know, our particular group is full of different personalities, whether that's more introverted, more extroverted, um, people that are highly opinionated, people that are a little bit quieter, a little bit more thoughtful, and you sort of have to manage that. And then you have to also manage you know, different competing asks on the doorstep as well. Mm. Um, so you, you do gain a whole set of skills. Um, and the other thing in terms of advice, as well as don't going it alone, I think is get fit. <laughs> Weirdly, <laughs> go to the gym. I don't know if it's just my no, my, that's very true. my estates. That's I, very I true. Have no, I'd agree of, with that. Yeah, <laughs> I have a lot of estates with no lifts, unfortunately, because of when they were built. So, uh, and I'm the youngest in my ward out of the three of us. So I'm the one that gets sent to the top of the uh, the stairs each time. Uh, so during our campaign for election, it was so bad, the amount of stairs I had to walk up, that I actually started dreaming about it. Oh so I was God, dreaming about never. endless stairs and endless letters. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's uh, making sure that you have a break, making sure you do other things. And if you're younger than your ward colleagues, don't settle for being the one that has to go up to the top. Or at least go to the gym and get some exercise in. <laughs> so, yeah. That's excellent advice. Thank you. Um, last question from from me uh, I won't put a time on this because um, I might get into trouble with my conservative friends but anyway read into that what you will at some point a Labour Prime Minister says to says to you Heather um, Heather I want you to serve in my government you can have any job you want apart from apart from PM uh, what would you what would you ask for? You mean and apart why? from blind panic that would probably <laughs> say it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, I should probably say I like, probably my gut would be obviously development. Um, mm. You know, that's that's where my heart is. Uh, but because I never take the easy way out, and not the developmental foreign policy is easy, I never take the easy way out. I would probably go for immigration. I would probably because I'd want to fix it, and I'd be cross if I didn't. But yeah, I think yeah, I've never been one for taking a what I'd call a, a natural path. So I would probably go down the, the refugee, yeah, migration route. Okay. I'm probably going to regret this in many years' time. I'd go for foreign secretary. <laughs> not not okay, just it would because... Be awkward if you said I know, I know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually surprised at Heather's answer around uh, home office immigration, <laughs> but I'm so glad because that is a really... It's a tough one, Heather. Yeah. Uh, a really <laughs> tough one. Um, but no, I would... Um, I mean, if I 
had the opportunity, it would be Foreign Secretary, mm-hmm. just because I think my background, my story is just uh, such a good one for, for that role, um, not only for people here at home, but also for, for people abroad, just to show them that this is a product of the UK, in, in, in essence, and this is what we've produced, and, and there's a whole um, opportunity for other communities across the world to achieve the same thing, and and we need to work side by side for that, um, not against one another. Mm. Um, and it would probably be a tough role and be really difficult, um, but I think I'd really enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you both so much. Um, it's I've really really enjoyed speaking to you both, um, and not just because it's it's interesting and it's and it's it's just interesting to hear from a different party p- perspective. But I think you've both been um, just really honest, uh, which is not a slight on any of our previous <laughs> guests, but I think just in terms of just people in politics, I think it's I think it's really hard to allow vulnerability to shine through because for all the reasons you've mentioned, it's it's a difficult world out there. So um, thank you so much for, for sharing really honestly your thoughts on, on, on these things. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, really helpful. To, to hear your perspectives because you you speak with with a lot of passion about uh, about the, the areas that you've that you've got an interest in and and the ways that you're going to approach those so um thank you very much for giving up your time this afternoon and um you know obviously i hope that my party wins lots of seats but i do think <laughs> in a democracy i do think in a democracy there has to be opposition MPs and uh, and i i really sincerely hope that you are both among that number very, very soon, because I think you'd be wonderful additions to, to Parliament. So thank you so much. Thank you for thank having you. us. Thanks, Thanks very much. Us. Thank you. So Stuart, our first left of centre candidates, what did you make of them? Well, I thought it was a really interesting conversation. And what struck me was the passion with which they approached both uh, the foreign policy area uh, in general and international development specifically but but as, as much as as that passion the connectivity that they drew between uh between the domestic and foreign policy and the fact that what's going on in the doorstep in their own patches is affected by what's going on thousands of miles away uh that sometimes might seem a little bit remote and they showed that connectivity uh they showed a willingness to stand up and and say what they thought, um, and also that, that sometimes we won't agree on the means, but we will agree on what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, absolutely spot on. I thought they were both incredibly self-aware when they were speaking about their own uh, vulnerabilities or their own areas where they're not perhaps as confident as they'd like to be. I, I felt that really demonstrated self-awareness. I thought they were fired up. Um, They were switched on and exactly as you say, Stuart, so eager to make a difference. And for those uh, listening, you know, being in the room with them, I really felt there was a a real connection. And I think there was a connection because they're so authentic. And that's exactly what we need in politics. So, yeah, it was an absolute pleasure talking to both Heather and Paymana. And um, I'm sure they'll do very well in their respective careers. I agree. And I think authenticity um, is absolutely the key word there uh, and making sure that 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 comes across in in whatever whatever we do, um, recognising that the vast majority of people in politics, be they those in elected office, 
um, or be those supporting, the vast majority are in it for the right reasons. The authenticity point is is hugely important, uh, and we mustn't lose sight of that. Even if sometimes we might disagree, we might disagree passionately about how we're going to achieve something. The the the, the recognition that you're going into it with a, a real desire to make a difference, um, and and that isn't a trite thing. It, it isn't um, a sort of oh yeah yeah make a difference whatever. It is something that's really really important uh that we that we can make that difference um if we are passionate if we've got the tools um presented to us and if we make the right um right use of them uh, and and i think that from uh from both pemana and from heather that came across uh that came across in spades today absolutely well thank you so much to our guests and thank you for listening We will be back next week with another episode of Political Journeys where we will be interviewing another candidate uh, or someone with a fantastic political story to tell. So thank you for listening and please tune in next time.